There's a, there's a phrase I heard when I was a kid. Uh, you are what you eat. You guys heard that phrase before? Kids are literalistic, right? When I heard that as a kid, I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm not a pizza pop. What are these adults talking about? Uh, but I actually think there is a phrase that's a lot more true than you are what you eat. And it's uh, you are what you watch. Or, or more particularly, you are who you watch. That you become... Most like the people that you, that you spend the most time with, that you, that you, that you admire, that you, that you kind of devote your attention to. Actually, maybe not even just admire. The people you devote the most attention to, those are the people that you end up becoming most like. And, and so it's so important to surround yourself with the kinds of people that you want to emulate. And a constant in my life in that regard has been my grandfather. My grandfather, his, his whole adult life basically has been a, a pastor, an author, a professor, uh, teaching the Bible, learning about the Bible, and he's well into his 80s, and he's still doing it. He's still writing books. He self-publishes them, loses a lot of money on them, but he does it. He writes, and he, and he speaks, and he checks in regularly on his son, his son-in-law, and, and me, his grandson, who all preach regularly, too. He's very encouraging. Once in a while, he's like, Craig, I don't know if I would have said that if I were you, but he's, he's very encouraging, and I've always said, when I am his age, I, well, I want to be like him, you know, in terms of that, uh, that curiosity, that thirst to, to know more, to grow more, to, uh, to, to know more of the Lord. He sets the bar pretty high. I, I, want, to, I want to be like my grandfather when I'm a, an elderly man. And, um, and as important as that is for us as individuals to ask who do we want to be like, it's, it's also really important for us as a church actually as well to ask what kind of church do we, want to, uh, do we want to be like? And, and what kinds of churches are we trying to, uh, to emulate? And, and like with individuals, it's probably not just one person it's, or, or one church. It's, it's probably a, a whole wide range. It's like a montage. But I, I want to bring us into, into a text in Acts today that I think gives us a church that we would want to emulate. We would want to be like this church. We spent a lot of time the last eight months or so in Acts. This is kind of our last uh, Sunday until the fall where we're going to be in Acts. But, uh, but we spent a lot of time with the church in Jerusalem in these early chapters. And the church in Jerusalem is inspiring in all kinds of ways, but it is also a very, very different city, very different context than ours, obviously, entirely a kind of a Jewish setting, a very unique city even in the ancient world. Uh, but, but Antioch is another story. Antioch was the uh, third biggest city in the Roman Empire. It was in uh, what was then Syria, what is modern-day Turkey. It's still a city, actually. It's, it's called Antakya in Turkey. Uh, so third biggest city in the Roman Empire, pretty close to the Mediterranean coast, as you can see there with my little circle and, and arrow. So very, very diverse city. Lots of people coming and going. Lots of different cultures and ethnicities. Very religious city with uh, temples and shrines set up to all kinds of gods and goddesses. And a bit of a morally loose city as well. Maybe especially in the area of sexual morality. And that was often tied in with, with ancient religion. You know, you'd go worship the god and then you would maybe do some other things as well in, in ancient religions. So, uh, so all of that was true of, of ancient Antioch. Now, North Van and, and Metro Van as a whole doesn't check off every one of those boxes, but there are probably, you can probably see some similarities. And the church that emerges in this city in the first century ends up becoming one of the major kind of headquarters of early Christianity. As we'll see later on in the book of Acts, it becomes a sending church, a church that God uses significantly to spread the good news of Jesus in the ancient world. And I would, I would pray that the same would 
be true of us at the Bridge Church in the 21st century, that God would use us as his instrument in making the gospel known. And what we want to look at today are seven characteristics. And I realize even going through this, there are, there are a lot more. But we'll look at seven characteristics of this church that made it so useful in God's hand to bring the good news of Jesus to, to the ancient world. So I will pray once again. And just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. And, and we thank you so much for this text. Uh, we thank you so much for the church in Antioch and for the witness we have uh, as to their life together. And we do pray, Lord, that as we go through this, that you would inspire in us and, and cultivate in us a thirst to be like this. Uh, Lord, that, that we would be encouraged to keep moving forward as individuals, but also as a church, as we seek to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Acts 11, verses 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. First thing I want to look at here is that this was a church that was fueled by evangelism, by sharing the good news. This is a church where people understood that Jesus had saved them, loved them, rescued them, delivered them from evil and from death and from sin into life, into hope, and, and that he had filled them with his Holy Spirit, and they wanted to share this with others. And this evangelism seemed to come in two main waves in Antioch. The first wave was with these people who had been scattered by this persecution that took place when Stephen was killed. Now this goes back to Acts chapter 9. Stephen, or sorry, Acts chapter 7. Stephen was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he had uh, special success in sharing the good news with other Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews who had um, grown up in other places besides Judea. So they're familiar with, they kind of bridge the gap between a foreign culture and the culture of their ancestors. So he's sharing the good news. People are believing, but others, maybe uh, motivated to show that they really were Jewish, they end up rising up against Stephen. They oppose him, and led by Saul, another Hellenistic Jew, they actually stone Stephen to death. And this 
prompts them to keep on going. They go, hey, this is great. Let's do some more of this. And so they keep on persecuting and they drive many of the Hellenistic Jewish believers out of the city and they scatter all over the ancient world. Some of them come to Antioch and guess what they keep on doing? Now, I know I made this point a couple months ago, but let's be honest, you forget most of what I say by 11.30 a.m. and anything you remember is worth repeating anyways. So, What did they get in trouble for in the first place? They got in trouble for talking about Jesus, right? They get get forced to flee their homes because they're talking about Jesus. They're fearing for their lives because they're talking about Jesus. So now that they're on the run, what do they do? They talk about Jesus. What? Did anybody tell them that was a bad idea? You guys just saw what happens. See, in a lot of us, including myself sometimes, we shy away from talking about Jesus with others. Why? It's not because we're going to get stoned to death or forced to flee our homes, right? But somebody might look at us weird. And how do you come back from that, right? I mean, whoa! (laughs) I mean, I get it, because social ostracism is, it causes anxiety, right? We don't want to experience that. But, But if that stops us from sharing about Jesus, maybe that says something about how much more deeply the gospel needs to hit us personally, and, and how much more we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. These, these Christians who, are, who flee to Antioch are apparently so, so full of gratitude, so aware of what Christ had done for them, so compelled by the Holy Spirit. It didn't matter if they would get in trouble. This is, they've got to tell people about this. They've got to tell people about Jesus. By the way, it's just as a bit of a side note, again, we talked about Alpha before, this great ministry. Um, and, and that's one of the ways that we as a church want to share the good news about Jesus with others. And you could be involved in sharing Jesus and not be involved in Alpha. That's okay. But I want to encourage you again to invite somebody to come. I, I plan on, on doing that. I plan on inviting some more people already have. Uh, but we would love to, to see you invite people to Alpha so that we can together as a church share the good news of Jesus. Jesus with others. The second, uh, the second wave of evangelism that takes place here uh, are, are people who come from Cyprus and Cyrene. So just like one, one little sentence later. Uh, Cyrene, by the way, interesting little connection. If you remember the stories in the Gospels when Jesus is going to the cross and he's unable to carry the cross, and Simon the Cyrene takes his cross, carries it for him. So Cyrene had this interesting early connection. Maybe Simon goes back. He tells people, this is what I did. This is what I saw. Cyrene was also represented at Pentecost uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured on the disciples and many people were baptized. So there's this rich history already with Cyrene. They come to Antioch and they're going to share the good news too, but they carry it one step further. They actually start telling the Gentiles, tell Greek-speaking people. And, and this is something that was kind of opened up by that whole Peter and Cornelius episode we looked at in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 10. But, but now they're, they're, they're going even further. They're not even, they're not even waiting for an invitation from, from, uh, from somebody else. They're just going. They're just sharing the good news with others. You know, I, I had me thinking about... Who are the people? Because here's, here's the thing about this. We take it for granted that Jesus is good news for us. But for Jews in the first century, Jewish believers, they probably would have thought, well, Jesus is mostly good news for us. He, he's our Savior. He's our Messiah. He's the fulfillment of our scriptures. So it's not even just that the Gentiles are like unclean and we kind of don't want to hang out with them. It's that they're probably not interested anyways. You know, they're probably, this doesn't really concern them. But these 
believers from Cyrus, Cyprus and Cyrene, they, they end up evangelizing. They end up telling them anyways. And, and it had me thinking about how maybe a lot of us have, have people in our lives or, or people in our, in our city who we just assume they're not going to be interested, right? They're like, they're just, they're just not going to be receptive to the gospel, so why even bother? And what if those are exactly the places where God would bless our ministry most if we actually stepped out in faith? A couple of examples of this. Um, one of the pastors I, I got to know in Victoria this, this past week was there with our, our denomination. Uh, he was sharing how over the, the last year, a number of individuals who identified as LGBT connected with his church. These are people that most Christians wouldn't assume are receptive to the gospel. So they came in, they welcomed them, they were part of community groups. Uh, and, and the church still was very open and honest about its teaching about, about biblical marriage, but just loved these individuals. And, and over the year, they became believers in Jesus became uh, convicted of God's calling to repentance. And there was this change that took place. Another example, uh, on the other, maybe what feels like on the other extreme for, for some people, depending on your worldview, would be the trucker convoy, which I know some people just wrote off, like anyone involved in that, bah, like unclean. But, but I've heard stories of chaplains who hung out there and, and shared the good news of Jesus and, and people came to faith in Christ. What I'm saying is there, there are people that we just kind of rule out right from the start. We're just like, no, they're never going to be interested. They're not going to be receptive. But what if those are exactly the people that God is calling us to share the good news with? I think that's what it was like for these believers in Antioch to go across the line and to share with Gentiles. And, and so may we be, like the church in Antioch, a church that is devoted to evangelism that's willing to cross cultural and social barriers to share the good news of Jesus with others. May we be so driven by our gratitude for what Jesus has done, by, by the Holy Spirit, that, that we just want to make disciples of Jesus, no matter what the cost. Amen? May we be a church that is committed to evangelism. This was also a church that we see very early on, second of all, was a culturally diverse church. So you've got these believers who crossed this barrier, and it actually, in some ways, was a literal barrier because ancient Antioch was divided into different quarters depending on your ethnicity. So there was a Jewish quarter where roughly the 25,000 Jews who lived in Antioch would have conducted most of their business. So you lived in a diverse city, but you kind of kept to yourselves. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to cross paths a whole lot. You know, And so these, these Jewish believers actually cross that barrier. They announce the good news. It's, there's, there, there, there's fruit. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And, and every indication is that it wasn't like they set up a Gentile church over there in the Gentile quarter and a Jewish church over here in the Jewish quarter, but that it was one body worshiping the Lord together. Now, how do I know that? Well, there's an interesting story in Galatians 2, one of Paul's letters, and he says that he came to Antioch, and, and Peter, he calls him Cephas there, was in Antioch, and Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but after certain people from Jerusalem came and pressured him to be separate, Peter stopped and he withdrew from the Gentiles, ate only with the Jews, and and, you know, that's a whole other story. But what it shows us is that the default in Antioch was that the Jews and the Gentiles were together, worshiping, serving, eating together, not in separate bodies, but as one. 
You know, there's this, this, uh, this quote, and I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, who said that the most segregated hour in America, and I know we're in Canada here, but nobody ever says anything memorable about Canada, so we have to go with quotes about the states. The most segregated hour in America is at 11 a.m. On a, on a Sunday morning. And obviously that was, I think, a lot more true in MLK's day than I think it is in ours, because actually, you just want to, who am I to disagree with MLK, but, but just push back a little bit, I, I think... I think in, in some places, Sunday morning service is maybe one of the most diverse hours in that city's time together. Uh, that this is a place where you see infants all the way up to seniors without any biological relation and people from all kinds of different cultures speaking different mother tongues all coming together and worshiping as one body. And I think we see that right here at the Bridge Church. And uh, I want to do something here. I'm not going to get you to stand, but I want you to, I'd, I'd like for you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask a question, where were your parents born? And I'm just going to go through a whole bunch of different regions. And if you've even one parent who was born in one of these regions, I'd love for you to just kind of raise your hand. It'll be really quick, but if, you could, if we could get 100% participation on this, guys, that would be really great. Um, so, so raise your hand if you have a parent who was born in Canada. Let's start with. Okay. How about the United States? We got a few there. How about Mexico? All right, we got some. How about the Caribbean? How about anywhere else in Latin America, Central America or South America? All right, how about anywhere in Europe? How about anywhere in Africa? Yeah, how about uh, Oceania, like Australia, New Zealand? All right, we got a few. How about, um, I'm going to name a couple places in specific, Hong Kong. Yeah, we got some there. Philippines? And <laughs> the only one who's excited about where they're from. Uh, and how about anywhere else in Asia? All right. And anywhere else that I haven't mentioned, like Antarctica or something like any Antarcticans here? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, this is what I love about pastoring a church in Metro Vancouver is that you see this happen. Like, like, people are raising their hands pretty much for every one of those. Multiple people, right? We've got, we don't have different groups of people all worshiping the same Lord, but separate from one another. One body, different backgrounds, wildly different social and cultural backgrounds, worshiping together, bonded together by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most incredible witnesses as to the power of the gospel, that we're all together in this, and the only thing we have in common, some of you are so radically different from each other, right? But, but the one thing we have in common is that when we come together, we want to know Jesus. We want to worship him. There's at least part of you that wants that, otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. And so we're, we're bonded together in this. Now, we can always slide back into our cultural silos because that's what happened in, in, Galatia, or in, in, in Galatians 2. It's what happened in Antioch later on, right? Is that you can easily slide back into that. But I just, I want to say this, this is such a powerful witness and I pray that it would be true of us at the Bridge Church, that we would continue to be a culturally diverse church that is united by the gospel. Isn't that good? Isn't that inspiring in Antioch? Third, third thing we see in Antioch is that this was an encouraging church. And, and here we see it mostly through an individual leader in, in Antioch, through Barnabas. But when, an, when a leader uh, is, is a certain way, usually the church eventually kind of takes on those same characteristics. So Barnabas, last time we saw him was in Acts chapter 9. Saul, who we know of as Paul, uh, had 
been struck by this blinding light on the road to Damascus, had come to faith in, in Christ, started telling everybody about Jesus. It's like weird. It's like something apparently when you meet Jesus, you want other people to know him too. It's really strange how that happens often. But Saul just is telling everybody about Jesus. And, uh, and people in, in Jerusalem are having a hard time with this. They think he's like some kind of super sly double agent or a mole of some kind, slithering his way in, pretending to be a Christian, but really he's not. And Barnabas is the guy, if you remember, who sticks out his neck for Saul, vouches for him, says, no, this is authentic. And he helps uh, Saul find his place in the church. In Acts chapter 4, before that, we meet Barnabas selling a piece of property and giving the proceeds to be distributed to the poor. Over and over again, we see that this was a gracious man, a generous man who was willing to lay down himself to build others up. And he's at it again in Acts chapter 11. Because Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, hears about what's happening in Antioch. Like, whoa, Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. This is craziness. You got to go check it out. The Barnabas goes up. He's, he's going to see what's happening. And instead of kind of exerting control, which is something of like a default human response when we are faced with a fearful situation, instead of doing that, he, uh, he sees that this is actually of the Lord, that God is at work in this. And so he, and so he encourages them. Now, now, he does also caution them. He says, remain true to the Lord. And some people think maybe that's because, maybe that's because actually he, um, he saw some potential in Antioch for things to go off track, to go astray. But, but even there, warning and caution are not the opposite of encouragement. Encouragement is the opposite of discouragement. You could learn that in kindergarten if you wanted, but you came here on Sunday morning instead. Encouragement is the opposite of discouragement. It's the opposite of tearing down. It's the opposite of, of trying to cut people down. Encouragement is all about building people up. And you can do that through words of caution as well as through words of praise. But fundamentally, Barnabas recognizes that this is something, what's happening in Antioch, this brand new kind of thing, it glorifies God, it spreads the gospel, and so Barnabas' words, uh, they, 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 they serve to spur them on in this, to encourage this, because that, that's what encouragement does. It, it leads to the spread of the gospel, right? God uses Barnabas' conduct and his character and his words in Antioch so that many, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And not only does encouragement lead to the spread of the good news, but it's actually reflective of God's own character, so the word that's used here uh, in verse 23 about Barnabas encouraging comes from the same Greek word uh, that Jesus uses to identify the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. He call, in Greek, he calls him the paraclete. And it's the same, same word as here. The Holy Spirit is an encourager, which is why Barnabas is described as being full of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the ways you can tell if someone is full of the Holy Spirit. It's not, it, it's not if they make certain claims. It's not even if they have certain gifts. It's, it's if they are like Jesus, if they are, if they are living in step with the Holy Spirit, if, if someone's words consistently build others up and build up the church and serve others, it's an indication they're filled, full of the Holy Spirit. If someone is constantly tearing down, trying to cut people down to size, well, that's actually an indication that no matter what the claims, they're actually lacking in the Holy Spirit. So, so when, I was, um, 
When I started out as, as a preacher, I was not very good. And that's, that's putting it mildly. Um, when I preached my, I think I've shared this before, when I preached my first sermon, I think I was 19 years old, and it was basically a 20-minute explanation of the plot line of Rocky III. Um, Rocky III was not... It was not a good movie, it won no awards, and it was made before I was even born. There was nothing culturally relevant about it at all. But I, I, I basically talked about it for 20 minutes. The sermon was called Eye of the Tiger, unsurprisingly. Uh, and, um, and I don't remember what scripture text I, I preached on. I think, I think there was some script, I think I, I think I mentioned a Bible verse at some point. But again, it was mostly Rocky III. And then I, I had planned originally on ending my sermon with a song, by playing a song by Blindside, which is a Christian, Swedish, screamo heavy metal band. And this, this was in a church basically entirely of elderly Mennonites. <laughs> and I remember telling my grandfather my plans. And he, and he gently told me, Craig, the point of a sermon is not to shock people. And so, so that did some encouragement, right? So I scratched that. I, I took that out. But it was objectively a pretty terrible sermon. Um, but I, I, got, I remember, I'll always remember this. I got a, a little encouragement note the next week from an elderly man in the church who had served as something of a mentor to me. His name was Henry Dick. He's passed away since. He was such a gentle, humble man. And he wrote me this note telling me, how God had spoken to him through my sermon. And uh, I, was, I didn't realize it was such a bad sermon at the time. Now looking back, I do. But I was so touched by that. And I just, I wonder if I had received a wave of criticism and discouragement after that sermon, how different maybe the direction of my life had gone. Maybe I'd still be flipping burgers at Dairy Queen right now. I don't know. But, uh, but I was so grateful for that encouragement. And, and I pray that we as a church would, would do that, that, that we would be a people who are building others up with our words, who are encouraging and spurring one another on to follow Jesus and to be faithful to him, that we would not be speaking discouraging words, exerting our superiority over others, but that we would be building others up like Barnabas. May we, like the church in Antioch, be an encouraging church, amen? Fourth thing we see here, and then kind of related to that story, is that this was a, this was a church that was devoted to, to developing leaders, new leaders even. So Barnabas is in Antioch. The church is growing. Great things are happening. Many, many people coming to the Lord. And so the needs for discipleship and for instruction are way outpacing Barnabas' own abilities. And so he, uh, he decides to take a trip to Tarsus, where Saul has been hanging out at this point probably for about eight years since we last met him. And some people think that, that uh, Saul was in kind of a rough place at this point, that he had been at this point maybe disinherited from his family because of his faith in Jesus. There's some indication of that, that he had been cut off from believers in Judea. You know, he's spending this whole time in, in kind of a bit more of a remote city from Judea. And so maybe he's, he's still preaching the gospel, till, still teaching, but perhaps is struggling with some loneliness, perhaps is wondering, what is God going to use me for? And Barnabas says, this is my guy. This is the guy I'm going to go get. And I wonder if some people in Antioch would have said, really, Barnabas? What about going to Jerusalem and finding a more experienced, established leader to come and help with this thing? Or, or maybe some of the Christians who had fled from Jerusalem to Antioch would have said, that's the guy who made us do it. That's the guy who caused such hardship in our life. You're going to bring him back here? 
And if, 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 if Barnabas was at all like any of us, and I think, I think Barnabas just didn't have very much ego, you know? He didn't need to be the superstar, didn't need to have the ball in his hands at the end of the shot clock. Like, he, he, he didn't have that much ego, but if he was like a lot of us, he might have thought, well, what if, what if Saul is more gifted than me? What if he's going to outshine me? What if my own status takes a hit? And not only that, but, but you know, you think about, about Saul in, in, chapter, in, in Acts chapter 9. Everywhere he goes, he's kind of causing problems for believers in Damascus and Jerusalem. He's kind of a, he's a pot stirrer. He's a boat rocker. He's another four-letter word thing that we're not going to mention. But he, he, he's, he's kind of somebody who causes trouble for, for Christians, it seems, sometimes. So, so do we really want to bring this guy in here? But again, Barnabas knows, no, this is, this is the guy we're going to build him up here. We're going to give him, we're going to give him an opportunity to enter into what God is doing. Um, and I, I just, I think this is incredible. And, and I, I pray that this would be true of us as a church, that we would be continually devoted to developing new leaders. It's been so exciting for me the last couple of years to, to see our church call new elders who have never served in that capacity before and are just so excited to grow in their, in their understanding of this calling and the way that they're, they're experiencing new aspects of ministry and just entering into what God is doing in, in a fresh way. <laughs> to see Kevin get his head patted by one of his daughters. It's, it's awesome. And, and to see some of our young adults uh, in the fall, leading worship for the first time, right? Just, just giving people those, those opportunities to enter into what God is doing and use the gifts that God has given them. May we continue to be a church like that, that is, that is empowering new leaders, especially members of emerging generations. I think, I think we see that in Antioch. And not only that, but fifth of all, uh, we're going to move a bit more quickly here, but the church in Antioch was, was a teaching church. They weren't just a church, that was trying to rack up big numbers, get as many people to raise a hand, pray a prayer, prayer, fill out a commitment card as possible. This was a church that wanted to grow people. This is what Saul and, and, and Barnabas do, what they're devoted to for a whole year. They're devoted to teaching. And what are they teaching? Well, throughout the book of Acts, when we see disciples teaching, and they're devoted, Acts 2.42, devoted to the apostles' teaching. What we see them teaching is what the scriptures mean, how the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus, and what it means to live a life in line with those scriptures, to live a life faithful to the Lord. And I wonder if we see that connection, actually, and, and maybe the connection isn't there, but right after we read about teaching, we read that, that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And this is a title that some of us don't really like very much, and we're not sure we, we really want to, uh, want to use this, this title of, of Christian. It's got some baggage. But in the first century, and, and I think still today, the word has the basic meaning of, of being associated with Christ, being part of the Christ party, the Christ group, that when people looked at and saw and, and, or saw and, and heard those early Christians, what they thought was Christ. They're all about Jesus. They're all about him. They keep on talking about Jesus. That's what they, they seem to be so devoted to. And so they just called them Christians. And, and you only do that, I think, if the teaching in a church is actually cultivating Christ-likeness, if it's encouraging people to share about Jesus, Right? And so we as a church, we want to be committed to that same kind of transformative, uh, Christ-centered, biblical teaching. That, that we really, we love it when people experience God as we worship together. I was, 
I was moved to tears earlier. I, lo- I love that. I love when others are moved, when, when others experience the presence of God. Hey, it's so exciting for us when people cross that line of commitment and say, I belong to Jesus. When people get baptized like Nicole did last week, that stuff is huge for us. But we're not, to, we're not content to just stop there. We want to continue to disciple people, to teach people, to raise people up into maturity in Christ. That's why I, I preach the way I do. I always, always want to preach from the scriptures. It's, it's, why, uh, it's why our community groups are centered around the word of God. It's, it's why we are promoting discipleship groups. It's, it's why we've got lay teachers like Peter doing videos on Ephesians. Because we want to help people not just experience something, not just make one decision, but to have their whole lives come into conformity with the word of God. To understand the scriptures and to understand from the scriptures what Jesus has done for them. And so may we, like the church in Antioch, be devoted to this. Sixth is that we see this church is, is a spirit gift empowering church. In the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit gives the church gifts that build up the church and enable the spread of the good news of Jesus. And every, every follower of Jesus has some of these, these gifts. And we've already seen some of them in this, in, this, uh, in this section. Teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit to build up the church and to spread the gospel. Encouragement is a gift of the Spirit to build up the church and spread the gospel. And most churches are okay with those, right? Most churches are like, there will be no encouragement here. We forbid it. Never met a church like that before. But there are other gifts that churches are a little uncomfortable and queasy about. Like prophecy. Verse 27, there are prophets in Antioch. Agabus gets up and predicts that there was going to be, through the Lord, that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, prophecy most fundamentally is communicating a message from God into a situation, to a group of people. That's what it is. But it sometimes can and does involve a future aspect, kind of saying this is what is going to take place. Again, I think the reason we feel uncomfortable, some people feel uncomfortable with gifts like prophecy instead of like encouragement, is because it has the potential to go quite badly, quite publicly. I heard about a church years ago where somebody stood up and prophesied, said, the Lord has told me that there is going to be a massive earthquake in the very near future and that people should sell their homes. So people did, and there was no earthquake. Just a massive, you know, prophecy fail is what happened there. And so it has the potential to go off track, and that's why it's so important that we understand how the scriptures instruct us to use these gifts We're going to be looking a lot at that in the next two months in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which is probably the primary text in the scriptures that give us guidelines about the spiritual gifts. So we're going to spend a lot of time on that. And I'll explain then why I think that all of the gifts of the spirit that we see in the scriptures are still in use today. They haven't ceased. They continue on. But for now, I just, I want to say that, that all of the gifts of the spirit, even the seemingly scary ones like prophecy or speaking in tongues, 
are all to be used by God to build up the church and spread the gospel. The church in Antioch didn't, didn't impede the gifts of the Spirit, didn't stop them because of the fear of misuse or, or because of some, you know, like things that made us feel a little uncomfortable. Instead, aided by right teaching, they empowered people to use these gifts in a way that benefited the whole body. May the same be true of us at the Bridge Church. Isn't this church exciting? Isn't the church at Antioch so exciting? But wait, there's one more, guys. There's one more. And I, I, again, I I, we could have done a lot more. We could have we focused on a lot more. But one more I want to talk about, which is that this was a generous church. So Agabus stands up, says there's going to be a famine. It's going to strike the whole Roman world. And people respond to this. They take up an offering. And, and people give generously and they give eagerly. And notice where the gift goes to. It goes to brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea. So you've got Gentiles in Antioch giving sacrificially and generously to Jews in Jerusalem. That never would have happened in the first century. Like there were no circumstances where you would have had Jew or Gentiles in a place like Antioch giving money to Jews in Jerusalem. We're used to this, right? We give money, we give money to Ukraine, we give money to Afghanistan. Like we give money to these kinds of things. But in the first century world, that wasn't a thing. And you especially wouldn't give money to a group of people who not only were a totally different ethnic group, but actually had made a point of saying that they were superior to you. Why would you do that? Well, to go back to the second point we talked about, they had been united. These, these uh, Gentiles in a different city than these Jews over here had been, even if they'd never met each other before, they had been united by the gospel. They had been united by the Holy Spirit. They were now part of one body. When one part hurts in the body, the whole body kind of hurts. And, and so, so they gave generously because, because the gospel, that's what it does. The gospel changes us. It transforms us and not just us, but our wallets too. I, I know uh, most of us probably don't use uh, bank books or pass books anymore. I, when, I, when my dad opened, helped me open my first bank account when I was 16 years old, uh, he gave me one of these passbooks and he instructed me to make record of all my uh, withdrawals and deposits and payments. And I don't think I've used a passbook probably since one week after that conversation or, uh, with, my, with my dad. But I'm going to invoke bank books here anyways because uh, there's a quote by Bruce Milne that I think is so good. He asks, when the books are opened on the great day of judgment, it's a reference to Revelation 20, will we be embarrassed if they include our bank books. See, because how we spend and give our money is not disconnected from our discipleship. It's, it's actually quite central to it. It's quite tied in with it. Because if the gospel has truly penetrated our hearts, then it's going to change the way that we give and we spend and, and we view our money. It's, you know, if, if you hold on tightly to your money, if, 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 it, if it's kind of a miserly thing, it probably indicates the gospel hasn't penetrated deeply enough to open up your heart, to open up your, your hands. And, and, and so may we be a church where, where we are generous, where we are eager to give of our talents, of our time, and, and of our money to build up the church and spread the gospel wherever God is leading us, whether it's here at the bridge in North Vancouver or around the world, that we would give generously as God leads us to, because we have been united to our brothers and sisters in Christ. May our wallets be as baptized by the Holy Spirit as we are. Look, the bottom line 
is that Jesus loves us. He has saved us. He has, he has made us his body. He has called us to be Christians so that when the world looks at us, they think, oh, those are the Jesus people. Those are the Christ people. Those are the people who are always talking about Jesus, who live like Jesus. We're always quoting Jesus. He's made us to be that so that the knowledge of him will spread in the world. And so our number one desire is that we would be the church that Jesus wants us to be. And we read in the scriptures that we are to imitate those who have gone before us, who have served the Lord faithfully, that we are to imitate those who imitate Jesus. And so for us to be the church that God wants us to be, and, and for, for us to imitate those who've gone before us, to kind of paying a lot of attention to the church in Antioch is a really good place to be. I want to, I want to share a quote with Leonard, by Leonard Ravenhill I've shared with you before. He asks, are we who still have coals of fire on our altars, measuring ourselves by the fireless altars of neighboring churches instead of checking on the praying blaze of our saintly forebears. See, because we can look around, we can say, well, we're doing pretty well as a church. The place is full, people are excited. This is great, we're good to go. But let's not just compare ourselves to um, churches around us, Let's not just compare ourselves to what we think is kind of a minimum standard. Let, let's, let's look at churches like Antioch, a blazing fire, a church devoted to the Lord and, and spreading the gospel through the ancient world. May we be inspired by them as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And may we become more and more a church like that. May we become more of an evangelistic church, a culturally diverse church united in the gospel, an encouraging church, a leadership-developing church, a church devoted to transformative, biblical, Christ-centered preaching, a church empowering the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a church generous. May we be a church that God wants us to be and keep striving forward in this. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we thank you again for the church in Antioch, for how you worked and shaped and formed that body of believers. They weren't perfect, no church is, but, but Lord, we thank you for that, just that fresh work of the Holy Spirit in that church in the first century and how you used them, Lord, to share the good news of Jesus with many, many others. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would do the same thing in us. Lord, that you would move in our church, that you would cultivate those same characteristics, and not just as a kind of a nebulous body, but, but as individuals, as part of this church, Lord, that we would be devoted to evangelism and, and to bridging the gap with others and to encouragement and generosity and all of those other things, Lord. May that be true of us individually. May it be true of us as a church. Holy Spirit, work in us. Fill us and, and use us, Lord. We want your glory to go out from this place. We want people to know you, Lord. So we devote ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make Him known. 
We believe He is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know more of Him and make Him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.